It's been quite a week at the Earth's poles. Large areas of both the Arctic and Antarctica have experienced temperatures far above average. Uh, At this time of year, the Antarctic should be rapidly cooling after its summer and the Arctic only slowly emerging from its winter as days lengthen. So for both poles to show such heating at once has been described as unprecedented. How should we understand these events? Well, Amelie Meyer is an oceanographer who specialises in ocean and climate interactions in polar regions. And Damien Gilday is a mountaineer, Antarctic guide, and he's been the Antarctic correspondent for the American Alpine Journal for just over 20 years. Welcome to you both. Hi, Carly. Amelie, let's let's start with uh, what the situation is now. Are these simultaneous high temperatures continuing? And just how high did they get? Good question. So it was mostly last week over a few days and they're over now. So it's pretty much what we would call a heat wave, like the ones we get um, in summer, except they were at the poles and at the same time. And as you pointed out, we don't expect both poles to have heat waves simultaneously since they are at opposing seasons. So that's very unusual. How warm they were is also very unusual. For for the Antarctic, uh, closer to home here, temperatures were about 40 degrees Celsius above normal last week in eastern Antarctica for a few days. The continent as a whole was about five degrees warmer than normal. As for the Arctic, um, some values reached Um, you know, 30 degrees above normal and overall about three degrees. So to put it in perspective, just a few degrees above is already huge. I mean, with climate change, we've seen an overall increase of about 1.1 over the whole globe over 100 years. And when you had this heat wave and you reach values like 30 or 40 degrees above normal, that's absolutely incredible. I mean, Amelie, you've lived in the Arctic. Your work relates to both polar regions. What's your reaction, your initial response when you see these kinds of temperatures? I actually saw some plots, some scientific figures showing the maps of how warm it was uh, on the internet and literally ran out of the office and went and found some colleagues to look at it because it was so unexpected. First I saw the plot, I was, something must be wrong. Um, The scales don't look right. I'm reading 40 degrees. I just didn't understand what was going on. Um, It was completely unprecedented, as you've seen, but also unforeseen, so unexpected. Um, just took us all by surprise. Damien, what about you? What was your initial reaction? Yeah, well, like Dr. Meyer, I was I was pretty shocked and I actually thought it, it must have been a mistake as well. And um, I thought that they were somehow reproducing the news from two years ago when the Antarctic Peninsula got temperatures of around 18, 20 degrees uh, Celsius, so above, above freezing, and I thought it must have been a repeat of that somehow. Um, but, of course, it wasn't. It was uh, even more uh, amazing. But this is the thing, I guess, it comes against this background of warming over time. And, you know, we had those record temperatures on the Antarctic Peninsula two years ago and five years before that you had a, a record. And as Dr. Meyer said, it's been warming generally. So, you know, it's it's amazing, but it's it's the real impact. I think is that it's it's coming in a environment that's increasingly warming, increasingly marginal, depending where you are in Antarctica. Damien, let's talk about where exactly this weather has hit. I mean, most of us who've not been there could do with an explainer of that. It's not the area where tourists or even most scientists or ships visit. Is that right? 
No, that's right. I mean, if you look at most maps of Antarctica, it looks kind of like a frying pan. You've got the handle on the left, which is the Antarctic Peninsula beneath South America and West Antarctica. And, and on the right, you've got East Antarctica. And West Antarctica is, is lower and warmer generally. Um, and East Antarctica is overall is higher and colder than West Antarctica. And most of the warming and melting that's been recorded in Antarctica is certainly more in the West. And so that kind of makes it even more unusual that this incredible like heat spike has happened in the east, which is normally so much colder, mm. um, and particularly inland. You know, um, Vostok, the Russian base where the, the coldest temperature ever recorded was, is over there in the sort of middle of East Antarctica, and it's got to minus 89. Uh, that's the, the world record. And it's basically in 65 years of recording there, it's never got above minus 30. And last week it went to about minus 17 or minus 15 or something. And, and am I right, Damien? Did I read somewhere that um, that Vostok actually had rain as well? I, I don't know if they got rain at Vostok, but, you know, rain is, is something that you, you never used to get in Antarctica. Maybe there was some, some freak sort of things around the coast, but generally you never got rain but um certainly in the antarctic peninsula on the on the western side rain is something that people uh tourists and people working on the peninsula are now experiencing kind of every now and then um it's become more frequent in the last 20 years and, and some of the other coastal areas which are quite low it's it's getting warm enough to rain i can um pick up on the rains what happened at both the poles was this warm, uh, really moist air currents coming through from lower latitudes and they're not usually found at the poles and they bring in a lot of um, uh, moisture so that can fall as rain or snow. And so mm. while we don't have a lot of observations, we only measure rain really at the stations in Antarctica and we don't have lots and lots of them. Um, we have models that can look at what's happening in real time and the models say that uh, over eastern Antarctica last week it both snowed and rained uh, very um, anomalously. So for the snow, it was two to three times more than usual and that there would have been some rain on the coast. Quite mm. a lot of rain in places like um, 50 mils of rain, which would be absolutely out of the realm of normalness for that region for eastern Antarctica. Mm. Um, but we don't have yet observations to confirm that we actually, how much exactly rain we got on the coast. Okay. Damon, you've climbed some of the highest mountains in Antarctica. You have a, an intimate knowledge of the place and when you think about where you've been and what it might have been like this week, what do you think the difference is? I guess, that, you know, when I first thought about it, I thought it's not going to make any difference because um, no, most of the highest mountains, they're a fair way inland and they're quite high and most of the sort of effects are going to be nearer the coast where it's going to be warmer. But, I, you know, I, I wasn't down on um, the Heights Mountains this year, but some friends posted a photo from Vincent Base Camp, which is at Mount Vincent, the highest mountain where quite a number of tourists go, probably a couple of hundred people a year go to climb that. And they had an unusual amount of snowfall and they actually had a quite a large avalanche. And normally, you know, Antarctica is quite dry in terms of precipitation. But um, you don't get enough snowfall really to cause bad avalanches. But it was basically the biggest avalanche that anyone had seen in 30 years of operation in that area. So, you know, I think that's pretty significant. But, you know, if, if you were in an event like this and you were nearer the coast, like if you were climbing on the Antarctic Peninsula or somewhere like that, you know, from my experience of the warmer temps there, you get collapsing snow ridges on the glaciers. There's more crevasses open. There's uh, more rock fall when the, the rocks are let loose by the 
ice melting that normally holds them together and you know getting around on some of the glaciers is more difficult you know quite apart from the the impact for penguins and stuff which are often breeding and trying to get around on sea ice which is is breaking up in those kind of temps. We'll come back to the impacts it might be having on plants and animals but uh, Amelie just briefly on the Arctic What's been the trend there and what are the implications on the ground in terms of what's happening to communities and the landscape? So the Arctic heat wave was not unprecedented last week, but it was an extreme event and something that was rare until recent years and that we see a lot more. In terms of bigger trends, um, the Arctic is warming up two to three times faster than the rest of the planet and we call that the Arctic amplification. It's got to do with um, sea ice and albedo effect. It just means that the sea ice has been disappearing really rapidly. Um, the Arctic itself has been warming. There's been uh, a lot of bushfires and droughts in the terrestrial parts, so Siberia, for example, the Russian Arctic. And this this event from last week just adds to all of this. So they add up. So an individual event doesn't impact a whole lot uh, at large scale. So, you know, for the whole Arctic, it might change when the freeze and melt season starts. It will have uh, some impacts on local ecosystems. But when we have many of them, when they add up and more often, that's when you see really the impact leads to feedback mechanisms. They're like vicious circles where one event reinforces another and that leads to unexpected and more rapid changes in not just the region but the entire hemisphere. And that's what we're really watching out for. Amelie, tell us about the role of sea ice and what the rapidity of this melting actually means. It's a very good question, Kylie. Sea ice um, in Antarctica is a little bit different from the Arctic sea ice. It hasn't melted as fast as we expected, and there's a lot of reasons we understand behind that. But this year, this summer, was the lowest ever recorded sea ice extent. So it did reach a minimum that was unprecedented. And having so little sea ice around the continent for the last few months might have actually impacted how this heat wave was able to cross the Southern Ocean and make it so far onto the continent. This is not something that we can um, quite confirm yet. It'll take a bit of time for the scientists to work on it, but uh, it's a hypothesis. Damien, the, the melting sea ice, of course, revealed something extraordinary that had been hidden for a very long time. Yeah, yeah that's talk right. to me about that. Yeah, so an expedition finally found the Endurance, which is Shackleton's famous uh, ship, which uh, sank um, before he made his, his journey to Elephant Island in South Georgia. And, you know, for as long as I've been involved with Antarctic stuff, people have been looking to try and find the Endurance. And for years people have been saying, oh, it was broken up and it scattered across the seafloor and all the experts were saying it couldn't be done. But as Dr. Myers said, it's it's been the, the lowest amount of Antarctic sea ice and that uh, really helped, I think, the team be able to get to the area and spend time there and find the endurance. And I you know some of your listeners would have seen the photos of the ship and it's just incredible the, the state that it's in. On Saturday Extra, I'm Kylie Morris and we're talking about the extreme weather at the poles this week. Emily, are there animals or plants that are suffering in particular as a result of these temperatures? So individual ones will have an impact on that season. So maybe um, the breeding seasons for that year for some species or for smaller for plants like lichens and mosses. Um, there are reports that, you know, the temperature on the ground is actually much higher within the ecosystem itself. So within the moss, you know, it can be minus two degrees outside, but the moss itself might be sitting at 10 degrees. And so when you have such a heat wave, it really affects it locally. But it's a bit like your plant in your garden. You might have a few plants that don't do well for a few months and then they could recover next year if there's none, no more events. 
it's when you add up the events more frequently that you really see changes. And this is when we get into something we call compound events uh, for climate extremes. So this is when you have different types of events that kind of lead to each other. And we see that in the Arctic, uh, where you have several heat waves that lead to drought conditions. And then when you have drought conditions in the summer, you end up with more intense bushfires. And they're all linked to each other. And this is what we see happening a lot more with climate change. Damien, what about you? I mean, really, in the in terms of this total sum of things, we know little about Antarctica. So what con- concerns do you have about these types of weather events and the future of that place? Well, there's effects on, on tourism. Most of the tourism to Antarctica is ship-based. Um, only a small proportion fly in. For the people that fly in, Hot temperatures like that can affect uh, the runways that planes land on. Um, most of the planes that I've worked with, you're landing on a blue ice runway, which is less susceptible, but it's still affected by unusually high temps, the landing surface. And, of course, the, the runway uh, near Casey in the Australian Antarctic is badly affected in the middle of summer and can't be used there. So there's problems in terms of access caused by high temperatures. Um, for the ship stuff where most of the tourists go, they they're operating in a fairly uh, small area in the northern tip of the peninsula because there's an increasing number of tourists. I mean, it was up to 70,000 a year just before COVID. There's increasing pressures on where people can go and what people can do. And when you add something like this in, it can affect the access in terms of sea ice conditions and whatever. So it introduces this, this other element of uncertainty and kind of pressure into a situation which is already getting kind of marginal. But from my own personal experience, you know, some years ago I was climbing a high mountain coming down with my partner and we heard this noise and it was, it was an unusually hot day for that time, but it was still sub, sub-zero sub generally. But, you know, we heard this noise and we went to see what it was and it was running water and we'd, we'd found running water at about 2,800 metres, you know, wow. a couple of thousand kilometres inland. And that's really unusual. But if things like that are compounded, if there's hundreds or a thousand of those kind of events around Antarctica in in hot conditions, it it can have some pretty serious effects, which they're actually having in Greenland where you're getting runoff, which is either on top of a glacier and melting through or it's going down into the cracks at the edge, what we call the Bergschrund, where the glacier meets the mountain. It can cause the bits of the glacier to slip, but then it also refreezes and causes pressure against the glacier and, and can cause fracturing of small ice sheets and glaciers and things like that. So like with all these things, one of these things is is not significant. But if it's compounded around the continent and exacerbated by sort of what we think of freak events like this, then it can have a really serious effect because things like the West Antarctic ice sheet around the Thwaites Glacier and parts of the Antarctic Peninsula, like Larsen B ice shelf, which broke off some years ago, you know, these can all be tipped over into a point by events like this because they're already marginal. Amelie, is, is that what you're thinking too in terms of that language of tipping points, of a, of a spiral of repeated and frequent kinds of weather like this? Yes, so tipping point are when you suddenly change into a new kind of system completely. Here it's more um, increasing frequency, so it's just more often. And we do expect that with climate change. We have 
shown that with climate change, we expect climate extremes to happen more often. Now, like we said, the two events were a little bit similar in what drove them last week, both the Arctic and the Antarctic, but they were not directly linked. What's surprising is that they happened at the same time, and this is more likely to happen in the future. The more uh, extreme events you have, the more likely they are to overlap each other. Mm. What's such a privilege is to hear both of you talk with such knowledge about these places that, you know, aren't easily accessed by the rest of us, uh, but also obviously such passion for the subject. I mean, Emily, we've spoken to Damien about his, his links to the Antarctic and what drew him there, but I'm wondering, you know, what drew you to wanting to understand the climate of the poles? It's been your life's work. I always loved the ocean, so that was a passion, you know, um, that came up as I grew up. But then when I started studying, climate change was just something new at the time. And I realized already that it was going to be one of the biggest challenges in science. Um, and so I thought, oh, well, how about looking at, you know, climate change in the ocean? And straight away, the pole is like the early warning signs. It was, we already 20 years ago could see changes happening, as Damien mentioned, uh, in Greenland and rapid melting of glaciers. So the poles were easy places to go to, not to go to, but easy places to look at the science. We already had a very strong signal of climate change there quite early. And once you're, once you're there, you really want to come back. So I've been both in the Southern Ocean and, and to the Arctic, and they are just incredible places that, you know, once you're there, it's just, oh, you, it's hard to put it into words, but they, there's this infinity and um, natural beauty and just no untouched. So when you come back to civilization, it's always a bit of a shock, actually. <laughs> Good. Emily and da Damien, thank you so much for those insights and that obvious passion and all your work. And thanks for joining us on Saturday Extra. Thanks, Carly. Thank you, Kaylee. Emily Meyer is an oceanographer from the Institute for Marine and Antarctic Studies in Tasmania, and she's a chief investigator in the ARC Centre of Excellence for Climate Extremes. How lucky we are that she was captured by all that infinity and beauty. And Damien Gilday is a mountaineer, Antarctic guide, and he's been the Antarctic correspondent for the American Alpine Journal for just over 20 years. Up next, what to watch what to listen to and what to read 